In the depths of a New England winter in 1675, the body of a praying Indian, a Christian convert named John Sassamon, was found under the ice of Assawampsett Pond. His hat and musket were found nearby. It looked like the 60-year-old man had slipped while fishing or hunting and fell through the ice into the frigid waters. But when his body was fished out of the pond, no water came out of him. His neck was discolored and it looked like it had been given a violent twist. If John Sassamon was dead before he went into the water, it wasn't an accident. It was murder. And Plymouth Colony authorities cast a suspicious eye on the Poconocet Wampanoag and their sachem, Metacomet, known to the Puritan settlers as Philip. Sassamon, raised among the English and educated at Harvard College, had died not long after venturing to Plymouth to warn Governor Josiah Winslow that Metacomet and his people were preparing for war against the Plymouth Colony. Winslow did what political leaders often do with unwelcome intelligence. He blew it off, believing that Sassamon was exaggerating the threat, perhaps to inflate his own importance. But the apparent murder of this highly educated Christian Indian who had acted as a cultural mediator for many years gave credence to the belief that something was in fact afoot. Colonial authorities found a witness or someone who said he was a witness who claimed to have watched from a nearby hill as three Wampanoag men accosted Sassamon, fatally twisted his neck and slipped him under the ice, leaving his hat and gun behind to make it look like an accident. The operative theory of the crime was that Metacomet viewed Sassamon as a traitor, that he'd found out about the meeting with Winslow and decided to have the praying Indian eliminated. Tobias, a counselor to Metacomet, was the alleged ringleader of the death squad. The other alleged killers were Wampapopquin, Tobias's son, and Matashinanamo. The three suspect Wampanoag men were arrested and set to be tried before a jury of 12 Englishmen, assisted by six Christian Indians in Plymouth in June. They faced death by hanging. If coming down hard on a trio of suspected murderers was supposed to put the fear of the long arm into the law into the Poconocets and quell any warlike tendency, it had the opposite effect. Metacomet's young men were already agitating for war, and Metacomet was increasingly unsure that he could restrain them. He was also increasingly less inclined to try. For years, the Plymouth settlers, who had once been close allies of the Wampanoag, had been encroaching on Metacomet's lands and treating them less as allies and partners than as subordinates or subjects. Taking jurisdiction over an Indian-on-Indian -Indian crime, if that's what it was, made for an intolerable encroachment on Wampanoag's sovereignty and on Metacom's authority. And the Sachem knew that the Plymouth settlers assumed he was behind the Sassamon killing. Maybe they'd try to put him on the scaffold. The trial was unsound by the Plymouth colonists' own standards. Two witnesses were required under the law for a murder conviction, and they had only one. Nevertheless, the three men were duly convicted of murder and strung up. The youngest, the son of Tobias, broke the rope and survived his hanging. Having been granted a reprieve from death, he then confessed that his father and the other man had indeed 
killed Zasimon while he looked on. So the authorities got their second witness after all. By the way, the young man's reprieve was brief. In a few weeks, with a brutal war underway, he was hauled out of jail and gunned down by musket fire. The executions, which were conducted on June 8, 1675, along with an order for the Poconocas to disarm and turn over their firearms, drove a stake through the heart of any hope that peace could be preserved. That month, the Wampanoag began burning homes and killing livestock in nearby Puritan settlements. On June 23rd and 24th, the first human blood was shed in what would become known as King Philip's War. It's hard for us, at more than three centuries removed, to appreciate just how terrible this conflict was. It is, to this day, the bloodiest war per capita in American history. In, the, in their introduction to the book So Dreadful a Judgment, Puritan Responses to King Philip's War, 1676 to 1677, Richard Slotkin and James K. Folsom describe the war this way. King Philip's War of 1675 to 76 was the great crisis of the early period of New England history. Although it lasted little more than a year, it pushed the colonies perilously close to the brink of ruin. Half the towns in New England were severely damaged, twelve completely destroyed, and the work of a generation would be required to restore the frontier districts laid waste by the conflict. The war all but wrecked the colonial economy, disrupting the trade in furs and drawing off so much manpower that the fishing fleet and seaborne trade with the West Indies were almost totally inactivated. The colonial treasuries, chronically short of capital in the best of times, spent nearly a hundred thousand pounds on the war, bringing them to the edge of bankruptcy. Beyond the loss in treasure, King Philip's War was, in proportion to population, the costliest in lives of any American war. Out of a total population of some 30,000, one in every 16 men of military age was killed or died as a result of the war, and many men, women, and children were killed were carried away to captivity, or died of starvation and exposure as the result of Indian raids. In a society so relatively small, made up of small towns and hamlets, such extensive losses meant that virtually every community and every family would partake of the common grief. And losses on this scale among the mature male population posed a real threat to the colony's continued prosperity, perhaps even its survival. The spiritual and psychological immiseration caused by the war, the trauma to the Puritan colonists in their collective spirit, was as deeply felt as the material and personal losses the colonies suffered. For a community that had conceived of itself as the new chosen people of the Lord, as the bearers of Christian light to heathen darkness, the fulfillers of a divinely inspired errand into the wilderness, the catastrophe of the Indian War threatened their most basic assumptions about their own character and their relationship to God and to their new world. As devastating as the war was to Puritan New England, it was catastrophic for the Wampanoag and other indigenous people who joined the fight against the English. Thousands of them died, 
killed in combat operations or more often by starvation and privation, and untold numbers were sold into slavery, many in the Caribbean, which was often an effective death sentence itself. The war broke the sovereignty of the indigenous peoples of southern New England, though the people were not entirely erased. The cruelty of the war was extreme, and both sides mutilated the dead and put heads on spikes, an act of psychological terror and intimidation. King Philip's war left scars on the psyche of New England and Native America that would last for generations and down through time and across the continent. This terrible war didn't just happen. While some historians have treated it as, as an inevitable clash of incompatible ways of life, it didn't necessarily have to play out the way that it did. King Philip's war was a tragic end to a relationship that had started out as a cooperative one, a relationship so significant that it has become enshrined in our founding mythology as part of the first Thanksgiving. When the pilgrims landed at what would become Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620, both they and the Wampanoag were in dire straits. The harsh voyage of the Mayflower and even harsher conditions of the New England coast in November left the pilgrims ill, and they were barely able to do the work that they needed to do to build shelter. Lack of agricultural knowledge and expertise for this new climate and limited hunting capability meant that this fledgling colony was on the verge of starvation. The Wampanoag had just barely survived an apocalypse. A scant few years before the pilgrims landed, this numerous and prosperous people, the people of the dawn, or the people of the dawn lands, were ravaged by a series of disease outbreaks lasting about two years. We don't know exactly what the disease was, or it was possibly more than, than one form of illness. Half or more of the Wampanoag died. In some villages, mortality approached 100%. The village of Patuxet was abandoned, and here was the site of New Plymouth. The diseases, which were probably some strain of plague, were likely acquired through glancing or indirect contact with European sailors, traders, and fishermen who had been poking along the coast and in the case of the French exploring the North Country for many decades before the, the pilgrims arrived. The Indian populations had little to no resistance to European diseases, and the result was like something out of Stephen King's novel, The Stand. In a scenario that would repeat itself again and again, the land was cleared for the pilgrims and other Europeans largely by germs. The pilgrims, as they were inclined to do, attributed this to God, that God had created this empty land for them to settle in. The Wampanoag, who were no less metaphysical in their orientation, may have also attributed their disaster to an act of, of God. The pilgrims, though, needed help, and the Wampanoag Confederacy 
weakened by the pandemic and threatened by aggressive neighbors like the, the Narragansett to the west, needed an ally. So the two people negotiated an alliance that would save them both and allow their societies to stabilize and, and ultimately prosper. The famous Wampanoag sachem Massasoit maintained this alliance very well until his death in 1661. His son, Wamsuta, known to the English as Alexander, succeeded him briefly, but he died in 1662. Um, he died of, of disease, but Philip, his brother, Metacomet, um, always believed that Alexander had somehow been killed by the English, either directly or indirectly. So Metacomet was Massasoit's younger son, known to the English as Philip, and he inherited the role of Sachem and an alliance that was in the process of breaking down. For a considerable period of time, and especially through the 1650s, the alliance had been as good for the Wampanoag as it had been for the Puritan settlers. Though they did not recover their population to pre-pandemic levels, and they continued to suffer from periodic outbreaks of strange European diseases, their death rate slowed. European goods, steel tools and metal cooking implements, wool blankets, linen cloth, firearms, markedly improved the conditions of their lives. The Wampanoag became prosperous brokers in the fur trade, that was established almost from the very beginning of English settlement. And their exquisitely crafted wampum became a region-wide medium of exchange. Just as a little side note, it's not often appreciated how important the fur trade was to the early settlement of New England. When we think of the fur trade, we think of the interior, the Great Lakes, and of course the 19th century Rocky Mountain fur trade. But the Plymouth settlers were immersed in the, the beaver trade right from the beginning of their settlement, and it was a critical source of income. And uh, although the, the Pilgrims' settlement in Plymouth was uh, largely a religious undertaking, uh, it also had a commercial element, and it was underwritten by merchants who expected a return. And they expected that return from the fur trade. So the Wampanoag having a role in the fur trade for a period of time uh, really elevated their, their status and was an important part of maintaining this alliance that had begun at the very beginning of the Puritan settlement in Plymouth. There were tensions all through the alliance period, especially over land. Settlers' livestock got into Indian fields and wrecked havoc, and the rapidly growing population of English settlers required more and more land, putting pressure on the Wampanoag to sell. Missionaries were successful in recruiting some of the indigenous people into what they called praying towns, where they converted to Christianity and were taught to live as Englishmen. And this was regarded as a cultural threat by many Wampanoag um, and a threat to the authority of the, of the Sachem. 
But it wasn't until the 1660s under Metacomet's reign with economic strains added to other pressures that the solid relationship between the Wampanoag and Plymouth Colony really began to come apart at the seams. Disruption in the fur trade was the catalyst of the decline of the Wampanoag's relative economic and political status. As I said earlier, it's, it's hard to fathom how critical the fur trade was in the 17th, 18th, and early 20th century. The destinies of peoples and empires turned on beaver felt hats. It's true. For several centuries, a hat wasn't just an accessory that some people wore and most people don't. It was a, a mandatory item of dress. And the most desirable felt for hats was, and is, made from beaver pelts. So fur hunters and traders had a raw product that was more or less in constant demand for virtually every person in the European world. Think of the iPhone and you have a pretty good idea how ubiquitous the beaver felt hat was. Everybody had one. And how extensive and lucrative the trade in pelts could be. But by the 1660s, the Wampanoag were losing or really had lost their role as middlemen in the trade. The region around southern New England, which was their homeland, had been completely trapped out, and they didn't have a real good way of tapping the fur trade in the interior. The rivers didn't run into the interior, um, and rivers were the main avenue of transport. And even if they had... The Iroquois were making a play to completely dominate the trade in the North American interior. And the Wampanoag had no hope of competing with that badass warrior nation. And that will come up again a little later on in uh, a further later podcast episode. So if the Wampanoag were going to maintain... The standard of living to which they had grown accustomed, they had to tap another source of income. And the only realistic one they had was through the sale of their lands. The Wampanoag were no fools. They knew that eroding their land base was a losing game, the equivalent of selling the car to buy groceries. But they often didn't feel like they had much choice. The Puritan settlers at the same time were growing ever more land-hungry. They weren't just stealing the land from the Indians. The English were scrupulous about observing legal forms and deeded purchases. They often did employ sharp practices, deliberately leading Wampanoag into debt and then pushing them to sell their land at bargain prices to clear the debt. It's easy to look back over 300 years and more from the comfort of our well-heated and well-supplied homes and condemn these settlers and other settlers throughout frontier history as greedy, avaricious, and unscrupulous. And sometimes they were. But in reality, the settlers and the Wampanoag were both caught up in an economic system that put pressures on them that they really didn't control. No different from you and me. Some people took advantage. Others were more generous. But the system itself ground inexorably toward a crisis 
for the Wampanoag. In his book, Mayflower, A Story of Courage, Community, and War, Nathaniel Philbrick describes a situation in the 1660s like this. Over the next few years, as Philip settled into his new role as leader of the Poconocets, New England grew more and more crowded. Both the English and the Indians depended on agriculture, and only about 20% of the land was suitable for farming. Adding to the pressure for land was the rapid rise of the English population. The first generation of settlers had averaged an astonishing seven to eight children per family, and by the 1660s, those children wanted farms of their own. The English were not the only ones whose world was changing. The Indians of Philip's generation had grown up amid the boom times of the fur trade and had come to regard expensive western goods as an essential part of their lives. But now, with the virtual extinction of the beaver, the devaluation of wampum, and the loss of so much land, this new generation of Native Americans was beginning to confront a future of radically diminished opportunities. The pressure was particularly intense in Plymouth. Unlike Massachusetts Bay and Connecticut, which had large hinterlands, the Indians and English in Plymouth had almost nowhere left to go. Pushed south to the neck of Mount Hope, Philip and his people were hemmed in from almost every side. By the 1670s, the Plymouth colonists were long past needing the Wampanoag in order to survive, and with the decline of their role in the fur trade, the Wampanoag weren't particularly valuable as business partners either. But they were well-armed and clearly growing resentful, and that meant that they were a threat. As the Plymouth authorities more and more perceived the Indians as a potential threat, they began to seek to subjugate them, including periodic efforts to confiscate their firearms. This, in turn, made the Wampanoag suspicious and resentful. Young men, seeing their future constrained and feeling like they had very little to lose, agitated for war. They wanted to throw the English back, maybe even into the sea. Metacomet was more cautious, maybe even vacillating, but he also realized that he was going to lose his position with his people one way or another if the situation continued along the path that it was on. He sent out emissaries to other native peoples, even to the Wampanoag's traditional enemies, the Narragansetts. All of the native peoples in New England were feeling the same pressures. Perhaps it was time to act. Metacomet began to sell off land and use the proceeds to buy arms, which, incredibly, he could still get from the English, even though they were constantly worried that those muskets would be trained on them. You can't argue with a lucrative trade, I guess. When John Sassamon warned Governor Winslow that Metacomet, King Philip, was preparing for war, he wasn't lying. When Plymouth executed three of his men for the killing of Sassamon, for Philip the die was cast. The encroachment on Wampanoag sovereignty was too much to take. Whether Metacomet was leading his people to war or being led by them, war it would be. We'll explore the opening moves in King Philip's war in the summer of 1675 in the next episode of the Frontier Partisans 
podcast series on King Philip's War. I'd like to thank the patrons who make this possible. This, uh, this particular series was especially research-intensive for me uh, because it's somewhat unfamiliar territory for me. All the previous Frontier Partisans podcast series have been in uh, terrain where I at least had a pretty solid grasp of the the lay of the land and in some cases uh, had much of the the uh, reading material that I needed to to verse myself in uh, readily to hand. In this case I'm starting off fresh with uh, King Philip's War so uh, that meant uh, a lot of acquiring research material, some of which I could get through the library and interlibrary alone, and some of which uh, made more sense to, to purchase. And uh, patron support through Patreon really helps make that possible, uh, defrays the cost of, of uh, the research as well as, uh, as helping with the, uh, the hosting fees and other uh, other expenses associated with the podcast. So it really does make this possible. So thank you, patrons. That's Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rawlson, and Rick Schwartfager. If you're... Uh, not a patron yet and uh, want to throw a few plues down to uh, help keep this electronic campfire going. Uh, the link to the Patreon page is in the show notes and uh, we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>